From the great state of Ohio, Buckeye Firearms Association presents Keep and Bear Radio, fighting for Second Amendment rights, calling out media lies, and telling the gun grabbers to come and take it. Now, Keep and Bear Radio. Indiana and Ohio are in a race to pass constitutional carry. A company announces 0% receivers, which will allow you to build a legal AR from a raw block of aluminum. The trace fires up its anti-gun propaganda machine to pump the mainstream media full of lies. And, surprise, surprise, two new polls show support for gun control dropping. That's what we're going to talk about on this episode of Keep and Bear Radio. I'm Dean Reek, Executive Director of Buckeye Firearms Association, and I'm joined by John Weber, State Director with NRA ILA. Hi, John. Welcome back to the podcast. Hey, Dean. Thanks for having me again. Well, John, um, I know that you're busy. You're traveling to different states, working on, I assume, constitutional carry and some other bills. Where are you right now? Well, right now I'm uh, at home in Virginia for the weekend, you know, doing my laundry and getting ready to go back out to uh, Indiana and then over to Ohio to, uh, as you said, work on constitutional carry. You have to do your own laundry. You're, you're, a, big, <laughs> you're a big NRA lobbyist, and you've got to go home and do your own laundry. That's, yeah. that's pitiful. Yeah, it's a, it's a sorry world now. We're <laughs> just like everybody else. Come home, do my stuff, go out and do my job. <laughs> Well, I guess it keeps you humble. Yeah, you know, it uh, keeps you humble, like you said. And, um, you know, I enjoy it. It keeps me busy, staying on the road, getting to go different places, seeing uh, all of our different friends all over the country. And it's uh, just great to get out there and see how active uh, the Second Amendment community really is. Now, you were in Indiana last time I talked to you, and they're pushing through constitutional carry just like we are. And the latest I saw that was at the— uh, House in Indiana just recently, I mean, just days ago, passed HB 1077 for constitutional carry, permitless carry, or whatever. I, I kind of prefer the term license optional carry. I started using that last year. It never really caught on, but I think it's a lot more accurate. Their bill, I assume, is similar to ours, right? Where they're not trying to get rid of the license, they're just going to make it optional for people. Is that right? Yeah, that's exactly right. The uh, licensing system will exist uh, as it is now into the future. Uh, it permits will just be optional. People who are eligible, uh, not prohibited persons, will be able to carry without having to take the class, pay the fee, um, do the fingerprints, and that sort of stuff. Um, they'll just have their right recognized and be able to carry, or if they choose to get a permit for reciprocity or other reasons, that's still available to them, uh, just as it is today. So uh, what is different about their process? Because I, you know, when I've been doing this, it's always been Ohio. Ohio has these big, long two-year legislative sessions. What's it like in Indiana? I was actually shocked the first time I heard that other states don't do it exactly the the same way we do, that they don't have these marathon two-year legislative sessions. What's it like in Indiana? No, a lot of places... um you know, just go for part of the year. It will be technically a two-year session and things can carry over, but they generally will go from January till 
about May or June in most cases. This year's a little different. Um, Indiana always has a shorter calendar in election years, but this year being an election year and a redistricting year, they are trying to get their business done quickly. And uh, we saw that with the uh, permitless, or as they're calling it, lawful carry bill was introduced there uh, at the very first uh, session. It was heard on a Wednesday and voted out of the House the following Tuesday. So, wow. uh, yeah, things that are, um, you know, but they litigated this concept last year. It passed the House. The bill was um, a little different this year, um, but, you know, they've seen some of this before and they were comfortable with it and they're they're getting things done quick over there this year. So it's out of the House and now we have to uh, go over to the Senate. So what happened last year? Because I read that it it was introduced last year as well. It did not pass. In other words, it didn't get signed into law. And the reporting that I saw was that it was actually the Republicans who killed it. And they have a, and, you know, like in Ohio, they have this gigantic majority in the Senate. So why would the Republicans kill that bill if they could have obviously passed it? Well, the chairman of the Judiciary Committee in the Senate claimed that uh, she had a couple of issues with it. And, um, you know, it was a, a strong bill. There were a few things that I guess could have been cleaned up and her issues could have been addressed, obviously, in the committee process. You know, that's what it's there for. You hear the bill, you talk it through. If you have uh, issues and want to make changes, you introduce amendments. But despite the bill uh, passing the House with 65 votes, despite uh, every Republican member of her committee being a co-sponsor of the bill, uh, she unilaterally decided not to give the bill a hearing and the clock ran out. Wow. I mean, that's that's really too bad. I mean, we're in, we're in a similar position here in Ohio where it's, let's just admit it, it's pretty much the process is controlled by Republicans. It's It's not a bipartisan thing. And we ought to be able to pass a lot more than we do. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. You would think so. Um, certainly, when the other parties in power, they don't have any problem exercising that power to its fullest extent. It doesn't seem, uh, Republicans seem a little more hesitant, a little more cautious, a little more slow moving. But, you know, um, at the same time, I think that process, uh, when in terms of constitutional carry, at least in Ohio, might be reaching its end. You know, this is an issue that's been brought forth for years now and discussed in one way or another for um, a number of years. And I think now might be the time uh, to actually get it completely done with both uh, chambers having moved a bill. Yeah. And so our bills, we actually have two bills that have been through the process. One's been through the House. One's been through the Senate. And we're waiting for the Senate bill to be introduced. Well, it's been introduced into the House. It's not in a committee as we're recording this. So you, you might be listening to this in the future and it'll be further along or maybe even past. But that's essentially, uh, you know, we are where they are. And we're in an election year like everybody else. So our goal here, as you know, is to try to move this thing before the primaries, before the election really kicks in, because then everything just goes to crap. I mean, when you have an election year, that's all that people think about. And what we've been dealing with in the recent past was here in Ohio, we went through that whole budgeting thing. So that was sucking all the oxygen out of the room. Then there's the redistricting. And as we're recording this, the court just struck down all those redistricting maps. So they're scrambling because they've got to resubmit the maps. And that's going to have an effect not only on the elections, but that's going to have an effect on everything. So, and uh, John, they're uh, in Ohio, they're not even quite back in session yet, right? 
No, not until the 19th, which is this coming Wednesday, I believe. Um, and at that point, they'll hopefully uh, meet and refer to the constitutional carry bill that's arrived from the Senate uh, to a committee in the House. But you're exactly right this year's and it's a general rule that, you know, nothing gets legislated in election years. And you compound that this year with the new maps and everything else uh, in the condensed time frame. It really is the primary calendar and the political calendar is what we're up against here. Once we get to that primary, we're not sure uh, what things will happen. So we need to try to move our legislation uh, before that. And then there's the whole virus thing on top of that, because they went to uh, the people who are still in the state house. I guess they went remote for a lot of people. So that slowed things down in the past. So, I mean, yeah, we really... John, you need to do your laundry and get back to work. That, that's what, uh, I mean, uh, because we're, you know, and you guys work really uh, closely with us here in Ohio. Uh, honestly, for all our listeners, I mean, let's just be, be blunt about it. There, there are other people involved, but it's Buckeye Firearms Association and the NRA doing all the heavy lifting. So we're the ones down there really trying to move these bills. And I honestly think we have a better chance now than we ever have in the past. I mean, it's especially... With all the crap that's happened over the last two years, that seems like a bad thing. But really, I think it's been an eye-opener for legislators when they've seen, okay, now I get what they're saying, that when times get bad, we really need these laws. And a lot of them are saying, you know what? Maybe they're right. Maybe it is time for constitutional carry now. Maybe we shouldn't have the licensing holding people up. Right. I think, yeah, I think that's exactly right. I think they're really feeling that way and they're really hearing it from their constituents and other people. I mean, with everything you just laid out, given their limited time frame, Omicron, everything else going on, they can't handle a lot with that few days. So the fact that they actually are handling these issues and not just in a mouth service kind of a way, like they're really handling them. Both chambers have moved it out of Ohio and uh, one chamber's moved it in Indiana. So it's clearly an important issue if given their limited time frame and shortened calendars, they are actually moving these pieces of legislation, not just giving them hearings and letting them die like they have in the past. And from my point of view, the licensing really is a form of gun control because the, you know, the constitutional says the right to keep and bear arms, that should be the default, not Licensing. Licensing should not be the default. So I, I consider the licensing a form of gun control. But I, I think we might be coming to a point, John, where it's not just a matter of people changing their minds. I think, you know, we're seeing technology change a lot over the past, you know, 20 years or so. And I, it might actually just make gun control impossible. And I'm talking about, I'm segueing here into another topic. I'm talking about manufacturing your own guns. I saw this story in Ammo Land, and it has a great, I love this headline. So the headline, and, and I'll be honest, I think this whole thing looks like just a, a big advertisement for the company they're talking about, but, but I want to talk about this topic anyway. The headline is, Ghost Gunner Launches the 0% Gun Receiver, comma, Metal to be Banned Next. That's a great headline. What they're really talking about here, we've seen these 80% receivers. Now, I, I'm not an expert in this. I've, I've never manufactured my own AR. I've never even you know built one. But historically, you've been able to, to buy what is called an 80% receiver. The receiver part is what's 
classified technically as the firearm, right? So it's manufactured 80% to the point of being done. And that's not far enough for it to be considered a firearm. So you buy one of these 80% receivers legally, and then you just do a little extra machine work to turn it into a full-fledged receiver. And then all the other parts, you know, barrels, trigger sets, optics, everything else, you, you buy just wherever, and you piece together your own AR. You build your own AR. Well, I guess the ATF is going to try to ban these 80% receivers, you know, because the sky is falling, John. Obviously, you know, we can't, we can't live with that. We can't have people manufacturing their own guns. So they're going to try to ban these 80% receivers. And so this company basically is trying to get ahead of that. And they've announced that they can now do 0% gun receivers. Let me just read a little bit more of this article. The group that kicked off the 3D printing of firearms has preemptively struck back against any new gun regulations by the ATF banning the sale of 80% receivers. Defense Distributed, that's the company, I guess, that uh, you know has these little CNC 3D printer things. Defense Distributed launched their new 0% receivers a week before SHOT Show. And so what they're talking about is SHOT Show, as we're recording this, is coming up next week. So I guess they're going to have these there. And you just, if you have their little manufacturing unit, you just need a hunk of metal and you will completely 100% manufacture your own receiver. So essentially, you don't need Smith & Wesson or Ruger or anybody else to make a gun for you. You now theoretically can make a gun from scratch yourself in your basement or your garage. John, doesn't this sort of spell the end of true gun control. If you can manufacture your own guns at home and the, and they are quality firearms and safe firearms, how do you, where do you go from there? Well, I mean, I think that's kind of what it gets to the core of a lot of gun control laws that we've been talking about for a long time is how possible is it to regulate, you know, human behavior on this sort of level, especially when it comes to things you do in your own home and when it comes to the right to self-defense involved with that as well but you know i think people have been making firearms in this country you know since they were invented now building things in your garage is pretty american and uh you know the 80 percent receivers i'd also say from having done one of those they're uh they're not as easy as you know people make them out to be it's not just a small amount of material you're removing there you got to do some real work but i think it just highlights that it's impossible to legislate when something turns into something else, you know, when does a, to this example, a metal block turn into a firearm? When does a spring become, you know, a recoil spring? When is a curved piece of metal a trigger? It's impossible to legislate unless you get involved in literally every step of the manufacturing process down to that metal block, um, which of course has huge consequences for a lot more than the gun industry. Uh, so I don't think um, that's something they'll ever be able to get a handle on. I think it's something that's always existed and always will exist. There's plenty of people out there with mills and lathes that, you know, use them for a lot of other things, but they're smart enough to figure out how to make a firearm with it. This is just a new, easier way to do it. At the end of the day, it's computer code and a lathe. Well, and they claim that you don't need a lot of expertise. They say that you can just take a block of aluminum and you're going to mill out the receiver. They, they say you need no special tools. 
no special skills. And again, I'm I'm sure it's not as easy as they're making it out to be, but it's a lot easier than it used to be. I mean, you you used to have to have basically a, you know, factory or, you know, you would apprentice at a place like this uh, to learn these skills. It's kind of a lifetime thing that you learn. Well, it's getting to the point where the computer can do most of this work for you. And they say that all you need is a hunk of metal and three bits. So, you know, bits to, to mill the metal. And you can buy the bits at, you know, Amazon or Home Depot or whatever. So it's going to get to the point they're going to continue refining this until pretty much anyone's going to be able to manufacture their own firearm. And no, it may not be, you know, a top-end firearm. You know, it's not going to be a Daniel Defense firearm. But it's going to be, if that's what you want, if you want to make your own, it's going to be serviceable. So again, where do they go with that? They're not literally going to ban metal. That's kind of a joke in the headline. But what would they ban? Where would they go next? Uh, ban the, I mean, it's kind of a joke, but isn't that kind of the point? Where, like, logically, considering like everything that we've seen from gun control advocates, every response that they have to reality and data, knowing that the what they call assault rifles are hardly used in any crimes, yet still trying to ban them, is it unbelievable to think that? Their next step would be to just keep working their way down the regulation ladder till they hit a block of aluminum. I, well, maybe. I mean, you know, we joke we joked for a long time saying, you know, people trying to ban guns, and if you ban that, what are you going to ban next? Knives, and then you know, like right from Saturday Night Live, we see stories coming out of England where, lo and behold, they're banning knives. I mean, they're yeah. really they're literally doing that. But I think. Where they would go would be they would ban the digital programs because these are like little computer-controlled units. And what and in the end, the, the company is going to sell you, you know, they want you to buy the manufacturing unit from them, which is not cheap, but they want you to buy the program that will mill this receiver. So do they do they ban that program, the digital code? That's really complicated legislation. Or do they ban the process or just manufacturing in general? You know, like there's a ban on growing marijuana. So, you know, they're not banning plant matter or chlorophyll. You know, they're, they're banning the process. Is, is that where they would go? Into an unenforceable law, essentially, uh, to your point, like banning marijuana. It's until you catch somebody with it in their pocket, you can't ban the water, the soil, everything else. And banning code, um, you know, I'm not a technical person, but it's probably about as difficult as banning a book or any other type of information from individuals. I think, you know, it's once it's out there, especially these days, once it's out there electronically in any form, it's impossible to to erase. We saw that we saw this process sort of play out with music. And it seems like it was a million years ago, but it wasn't that long ago. I mean, remember the the company called Napster, and then there were some others, Mm -hmm. and they were taking recording artists' music, and you could download it. So it was basically a way of getting around having to buy their music. Now, being a former musician, you know, that kind of rankled me a little bit because, you know, this is somebody else's product, and you're essentially stealing it. That's what that was. But it shows that when you have digital content— you can reproduce it infinitely. You know, th- this was the genius of software. You know, this is how Bill Gates became rich because once you have the code, 
you don't really need to manufacture it anymore. You just need to keep selling the same thing. So once yeah. it's digital, you can distribute it at will. And there are ways now to distribute things without it being out in the open. There are a lot of ways to distribute things, and you can distribute it limitlessly without it ever degrading or anything, without having to build a new one. Yeah, it's um, once it's out there, it's out there uh, in perpetuity. So there are a lot of the things that they can try to go after it, but at the end of the day, people will still be able, if they're really bent on it, to, to manufacture firearms at home the same way they're able to, to do a lot of things if they really put their mind to it. Someone will always be able to find a way. And They've been doing it for a long time. I don't know if you've even seen there's some entrepreneurial people out there uh, on the internet who have managed to make AK receivers with shovels. I mean, it's <laughs> people are clever and they'll find a way. Well, and then the whole, uh, probably the best analogy about, you know, banning things that people want, but the government don't want you to have is the war on drugs, which, you know, launched with the whole, I guess that was under Reagan and, you know, it was, it was called a war, but they, they just haven't really been able to do anything with it. I mean, how, you know, how's that really going? There's, there's still a drug trade. There's, there are gangs. And we saw that with uh, alcohol. I mean, there was a constitutional amendment, and everyone wanted alcohol. And truthfully, everyone kept drinking it. It's just a matter of, you know, who you knew or where you went and, you know, could you keep it secret and, and that sort of thing. And they had to eventually repeal it because it was just like, well, everyone just keeps doing it. We just can't stop it. So I think it's going to be the same for anything else. There's certain things that people have always wanted, and they're going to keep getting them one way or another. Yeah, every attempt at prohibitions ended up failing. When people are really determined to do something, there's nothing the government can do at the end of the day to stop everyone. So, John, I want to pivot here uh, because, you know, we're talking about gun control and all of this, and a big part of gun control has always been the media. Because really, there isn't a lot of super hardcore support for gun control. And we'll circle back to that point here in a minute. But a lot of what happens is that while the general public is, you know, more or less, depends on how you ask the questions, but they're more or less in favor of gun ownership in, in this country and always have been because we have a, a gun culture here. But what they've done on the other side of this, gun control prohibitionists, uh, people who hate guns, they've relied on propaganda. And one of the big propaganda sources, and I would, I would hope that listeners would have heard of this before, it's called The Trace. And The Trace, we were talking right before this podcast, and I used the term that The Trace is kind of like the Associated Press for gun control. Uh, in the media world, the, the Associated Press is a, kind of a, a group that puts out news stories and it makes it available to all kinds of other news outlets. And so you pick up these stories and then you rerun it in a newspaper or, or on your TV broadcast or whatever. So it's a way of having prepackaged news and you don't have to do all the research and writing yourself. Well, the Trace kind of does the same thing. They build themselves as an independent nonpartisan, nonprofit setup, but they were set up specifically to spit out anti-gun propaganda. And as you might expect, it was it's ultimately funded by Bloomberg. So here's how it works. Bloomberg is the primary funder for every town for gun safety, which is the big new and and I gotta admit, fairly effective gun control organization out there. They sort of 
swallowed up a lot of other organizations. They got the right leadership and so on, and, and they're being more effective than any other group that we've ever seen. Bloomberg funds every town. Every town funds the trace. The trace creates all of this propaganda uh, with you know stories mixing truth and lies, and it gets published, and then other organizations pick this up. So the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Boston Herald, whatever, they'll pick up these stories and rerun them. So it's sort of like, you know, how you launder money. You take money from crime and you put it through a legitimate business and it spits out the other end as, you know, smelling like money that's clean. Well, they're doing the same thing with propaganda. So they take the propaganda that comes from the trace, it gets out there into other media sources that launders it and sort of makes it respectable or, or so-called, you know, trustworthy information. So that's what's going on. And they put out a story recently. The headline is, it's official, gun deaths hit an all-time high in 2020. And I'm just using this as one example. And the story says, CDC data shows that more than 45,000 Americans died by gunfire for the first time driven by a spike in homicide. Now, John, uh, let me just ask you, when you hear that for the first time, what does that make it sound like? 45,000 Americans died by gunfire. By gunfire makes it sound like, you know, uh, street gangs, murder, robbery, just rampant violence, any right. one of those things. Yeah, gunfire. That's, I mean, that's what it sounds like. But what they're, what they're not telling you is that they're lumping in all the suicides and accidents. Now, there aren't all that many accidents, but about two-thirds of everyone who dies in any particular year dies by suicide. Two-thirds. Now, when someone commits suicide, do you report that they died by gunfire? <laughs> Normally not, but the trace does. Uh, that's kind of this, one of the sad, disgusting parts about all of this is there are real underlying issues in a lot of this data that they ignore. Um, and it does come from the CDC, but they use it and twist it and manipulate it as much as possible. And the trace is one of those places that, you know, the trace writes the headline and then they go look through the CDC research to find the things that back up the headline and they put it out. Uh, it's disingenuous. Um, it's these problems in terms of violence and crime and suicide are obviously much much deeper and more complex than a firearm. And they'll only lead you to believe that firearms, their pure existence is causing all of these problems. And it's, it's frustrating, especially when, you know, the trouble that we go through and you guys at Buckeye go through when we testify and we're in committees and we're in meetings with legislators, you know, we present information and statistics on this sort of stuff. And we spend a lot of time to get them right. And we use publicly available data or reports that were done by third parties that we verify and go through and make sure they aren't biased and they're real. We use the FBI numbers and things like that. And we, and we break down into homicides, whether it's long gun, whether it's a handgun, whether a firearm or uh, police officers involved, like we have to look at this realistically because that's the only way to look at these problems. I mean, suicide is as much of a concern for our community as it is for everyone in America. We don't want to push a policy that would increase that. And obviously ours don't. And we can prove that with our numbers and the, the work that we do to really look at this. And that's what makes the things that come out of the trace so frustrating to see. And that's kind of what I'm driving at is there really is not a lot of hardcore support for gun control. It's a very small group. And they know that. 
And, you know, on our side, look, you know, we're, we're biased. We have our point of view. We have an agenda. And we're upfront about it. We're always upfront about it. Whether we're writing an article, whether, you know, if I'm on a TV broadcast and I'm talking about this, if we're testifying, we'll say, here's who we are. Here's what our agenda is. And here's the information we have. Here are our sources. We're upfront about all of it. But again and again and again on the gun control side, it's all about tricks, subterfuge. It's, it's smoke and mirrors. They're trying to make people believe there's more support for gun control than there actually is. They always have to rely on trickery. And the trace is one example of that. They're trying to put information out there, making it look like legitimate mainstream sources of information are worthy of your consideration. They, they, they twist the statistics. They try to make you believe that organizations like the Times or the Herald or the, the Columbus Dispatch or whatever, you know, are, are doing all the research on this. They create fake gun control groups that mask themselves, that pretend to be pro-gun groups. It's just all the trickery. And I think that they really reveal themselves this way. They're basically admitting by the way they do these things that there is not the support that they want. So they have to rely on tricks and lies. Yeah, that's they have to rely on distortions and things that are easily disproven. And that's why you know a lot of these things that they put out they only ever put out their side and they only ever put it out in writing. They never offer up. Uh, there's never a spokesperson for the trace who's going out there debating somebody. You know, they wouldn't show up with the, to read this report themselves on, on the network news or on Fox news, because a couple of questions would, it would fall apart in a minute. But when you find a friendly audience and somebody who wants to publish it, you get it out there and it impacts people who might not be on one side or the other and don't know about guns. And if you keep it up enough, you know, that's their, that's what they're doing. They're trying to poison the minds of those people with these twisted statistics and their point of view and pass it off as the news or unbiased research, which it most definitely isn't. And it's, and it's not about safety. I mean, anybody who spends five minutes in, you know, the gun community, I, I, I remember the first time, because I didn't really, I, my grandfather had guns, but I really didn't grow up in, in a gun family the way a lot of the people we know have. And I remember the first time I went to take a basic pistol class, I was really surprised at how much time was spent on safety. I mean, it was really astonishing. And it's everywhere you go and everyone you meet in the gun community, the pro-Second Amendment community, they're always talking about safety. They're always talking about doing things the right way. And that is not what you get from the supporters of gun control. I, they're not serious about reducing accidents or reducing crime or anything else. I mean, the, every town was calling to defund the police. Oh, I mean, absolutely. They, I mean, Shannon Watts was complaining about a gun safety course being taught in Ohio, wasn't she? In an elementary school that the principal and everybody approved of. What what is your problem with kids learning safety? It's just no, they don't talk about safety. All they talk about is bans. That's why whenever these things come out and points to the problem, the solution is always a ban and take firearms away. It's not. Should we run more commercials about suicide prevention? Should we set up more hotlines? Should we set up little mobile help centers for people? I mean, look at all the things that we've done with COVID that we don't do for any of these other problems that firearms are involved in but aren't the cause of. It, 
it's just about banning things. It's just about influencing people. Safety's of no concern. It's you know control and gun control specifically. It's, it's all really a culture thing. Underneath all of this, and I don't want to go too far down this rabbit hole, but it's really more about how people feel about the culture. I've, I've said this before. I really think that gun control is all about the icky factor. I, I think that they just think that guns are icky. They think that those of us who have guns are icky. They don't like those kind of people. And they just want to reduce the numbers as much as possible. I, I can't think of another real explanation because, well, I mean, look, for example, there was this news story coming out of New York with this new uh, uh, district attorney, Alvin Bragg. And he basically said he didn't want to prosecute anybody unless they had just outright committed murder. And so he was very proud of this new plan that, you know, they're, they're just not, they're not going to pursue all of these other crimes. And, yeah. and here's an example, armed robbery. Now you would think, well, geez, armed robbery. You know, if, if you have a firearm and you're, and you're robbing somebody, someone's life is in danger, that's a pretty serious crime. You're going to prosecute that, right? Well, they don't, they're not really concerned about that, I guess, because part of his plan is to reduce armed robbery, reduce the charge to basically a larceny charge. So, and that's like a misdemeanor. So ordinarily, you could be prosecuted for armed robbery, and it would take what might be a 25-year sentence in prison to maybe less than a year or a $1,000 fine. Well, John, I mean, seriously, if armed robbery in Ohio, if I were prosecuted and convicted— if it were less than a year or a thousand dollar fine, I mean, hell, why not go out and, and rob somebody? I mean, that's I think your odds are pretty good. This is like John Lott says, it, it's it's all about what's the risk when you roll the dice to commit a crime, what's the reward versus the risk? So if your risk is very small, you're going to maybe think, huh, why not? I'll I'll give it a shot. So if you're serious about crime, that makes no sense at all. These people are not serious about crime. They don't care about crime. They don't care about the accidents. They don't care about the suicides. Not really, because you can tell by their policies that this is all a cultural thing. They don't like guns. They don't like the politics of the people who own the guns. That's what they're going after. They don't really care about the guns, I think, because that's just a means to an end. I know that that sounds very clandestine, but I think that's really what it is. This is a cultural battle, not a battle about crime. No, I think that's absolutely right. This is a battle that's, um, you know, not to go too far down the rabbit hole, but it's a lot deeper and it's about a lot more than that. Obviously, you know, from all the examples you've laid out, it just flies so blatantly in the face of any sort of logic or rationality um, that it's hard to see it for anything other than a culture war, it's hard to believe that they can have any of those interests they claim to have of reducing crime or safety or anything else. When you go through the example, you know, the list of things you just read off to any sane, rational person looking at it, those aren't solutions to those problems. And we've known that for a long time. And uh, it didn't take very long for the consequences of those ideas to be borne out, did it? Well, there's a saying in politics that politics is downstream of culture. And what that means is that I know there are a lot of people who think that, well, you can you can legislate just based on how aggressive you are. You know, stomp your feet, wave your fist, scream, 
and all of that, you can get a bill passed. John, you and I know people here in Ohio who think that that's how it's done. That is not how it's done. The way that you do it is make sure that in the culture of all the people involved, that they have a deep belief in something. And then you legislate based on that. So in other words, one of the things I've been thinking about over the past few years is this can't just be about legislation. Legislation by itself does not solve the problem of how much gun control do we have. This is a cultural issue. If we don't have lots of people doing gun stuff, if people are not hunting, if they're not taking firearms classes, if they're not buying firearms for self-defense, if they're not competing, collecting, gunsmithing, doing, doing all these things that make it part of the culture out there in the real world, where your support comes from, you're not going to be able to legislate good laws or fight bad laws. The policies, the politics, is downstream of that culture. As, you know, as the culture goes, so the laws go. So uh, you look at other countries, Australia, England, wherever, where they seem to have lost all of their rights or most of their rights. The fact is, it's not that the pro-gun groups in those countries did a bad job. They just don't have the cultural support for it. So, again, this is a cultural battle. It's not just a legislative battle. And so all of us need to be involved in things and not just sit in our basement on the computer, you know, bitching and moaning about what the laws are. If you're not out there participating, if you're not passing this down to your kids, if you're not at the table all the time in this culture, then we're going to see gun rights go by the wayside in the future. Yeah, that's exactly right. This is, if it's a right you value, then it means a lot to you. You should understand that you want to pass that on to the next generation, and you have to do that actively without active participation, without people participating, and more than just legislative activities. All those, those are very important, but community and cultural activities, you know, Boy Scouts, Girl Scouts, whatever it is, uh, getting kids involved with this stuff. There's all kinds of organizations all over the country. Obviously, you guys are involved heavily in that. NRA is involved heavily in that. Um, but without that, it's just one generation away from being gone. And once rights are gone, as we all know, they're very hard, if not impossible, to get back. Yeah, youth shooting programs, apple seed. I'd like to see uh, you know schools bringing back programs. There are schools that still do have shooting programs. Ohio State University has a shooting team. A lot of people don't know that. Right down a block or two from the stadium, there is a shooting range. I'll bet most of the people listening to this podcast don't know that. I've shot down there. It's in the ROTC building in the basement, and they have a shooting team. You just never hear reporting on that. I think they've had people go to the Olympics. Yeah, I wouldn't be shocked, you know, because you don't ever hear anything about it. And shooting sports actually is a huge industry in America. You know, everyone knows about golf, but you don't ever hear about shooting sports. And just about as many people are involved in it, if not more. I mean, these days, especially with all the options you have, you know, there's all kinds of shooting competitions. There's something for everybody these days to get out there and find and enjoy. So, John, I just I want to end on a good note here. I saw... Another story, this was from the National Shooting Sports Foundation. That's basically the trade association for all the retail businesses in the United States, uh, you know, for firearms. And the headline was, New polling confirms Americans' widespread support 
for the Second Amendment. So there were these two studies that came out. One was from Gallup, and they're reporting that the support for more gun control is at about 50%, which is the lowest that it's been since 2014. The other was from, and I'm going to see if I can pronounce this correctly, Quinnipiac. Is that right? Quinnipiac, yeah. Quinnipiac. I'm, I'm very proud of myself for being able to pronounce that. That's uh, It looks very intimidating on, on paper here. Quinnipiac reports an even lower figure, just 45% support for stricter gun laws. That's a nine-point drop from April of last year. So, you know, a little shy of a year ago, it's dropped by nine points. About 54% of independents oppose enacting more gun laws, and all of that's really good news. In other words, after all that we've seen over the past couple of years, support for gun control is going down. Now, John, does that surprise you at all? No, not not in the least bit. And I think, you know, you and I have talked about this before, but I think this time more than any other time has moved this from being, you know, some sort of polling question or a theoretical idea or something you see on the news. Um, I, people see the real world consequences of the police being told to stand down or defunded. They see what happened when large groups of people get together and decide they want to break things um, and the cops can't get everywhere. People just have to believe it when they're faced with it with their own eyes. And then they come to recognize and, and appreciate how special the ability that we have in this country is to defend yourself with the firearm. And more people than ever are going out and they're taking advantage of that. And um, that's a change because, again, personal firearm ownership is part of American culture. And I think it's something people, um, current events have reminded people of that. So the reporting that we've seen is 8.4 million first-time gun buyers. First time. Not just people buying more guns. You know, like everybody I know, they have, you know, a dozen guns, three safes full of guns, whatever. I mean, you know, huge amounts of firearms. These are people who've never bought a gun before. 8.4 million. That's a gigantic group of brand new gun owners. And it was all about what we were seeing over the past couple of years. Not just with riots and what lawlessness that we've been seeing, but from how politicians, city councils, governments, law enforcement has responded. Basically, ah, that's fine. Go ahead and burn the city down. You know, that's that's just protest. That's okay. And and it freaks people out. And it's not just, you know, the old white guys with beards and plaid shirts. This is a very diverse group of people. You know, we're seeing it's blacks, it's Hispanics, it's Asians, it's women, liberals, Democrats, it's across the board. When it comes to the real world, people get very practical very fast, and their politics, I think, goes out the window. That's where you can tell how people really feel about something. Watch what they do rather than what they say. And so I, you know, I, I consider this good news when we're seeing that despite what people's politics might be, that support for gun control really isn't all that strong out there. And even this 50% number from Gallup for supporting uh, more gun control, I would like to see those questions. It's how you phrase those questions. You can get any answer you want based on how you ask the question. I think that what we need to be looking at is how are people acting with their dollars? 
if we have millions of people buying guns for the first time, I think that tells us what we need to know. Well, yeah, they certainly aren't buying them because of all the great sales going on over the last year and a half. Um, I you think that's exactly right. You know, that's why people are out there buying firearms um, for the first time, and they're going to continue to do so. Uh, the situation, I, I think that's one of those questions that uh, polling gets wrong a lot of the times. I mean, we all know all sorts of politicians, Trump most recently and probably famously, who shock this guy's always doing better than what the polls say. How could that possibly be? The poll doesn't say this is the case. Well, you know, I, I think I have some issues with that polling number the same as you do. Well, John, thanks for dropping by the podcast again. I'm sure we'll see you again soon because, you know, obviously you and I are capable of solving the world's problems right here on this podcast when you and I get together. So uh, I've got to have you back and Maybe after three or four podcasts, we'll have solved all these problems and we can retire. We're chipping away at them at a pretty good clip. (laughs) I look forward to coming back and uh, seeing you out in Ohio soon. Yep. Yeah. Give me a call when you get here and uh, we'll get together and we'll solve a few more problems. Sounds good. Thanks, Dean. Thanks, John. That's all for this episode of Keep and Bear Radio. If you enjoyed the podcast, I urge you to subscribe. And please subscribe to the Buckeye Firearms Association newsletter at buckeyefirearms.org. If you'd like to become a member and support the work of BFA, go to joinbfa.org. Use the discount code PODCAST to get $10 off your membership. That's joinbfa.org. We'll see you next time on Keep and Bear Radio.